0: Um, Okay, so my name's Keir Milburn. I'm just going to be chairing the session today. I'm going to introduce the panel in a moment. We're missing one member of the panel. John Ashworth should be here at 6 o'clock. So hopefully he'll come and and, and join in at that point. Uh, Before I introduce the panel, I just want to sort of set out uh, our thinking of why we organise this panel. Um, So the panel's called Let's Talk About Mental Health and Capitalism. Uh, And our starting point for for organising the panel was... Well, in some ways, a series of statistics which point to uh, a very large scale and an increasing incidence of mental distress, in some ways a sort of crisis around mental health. Um, The World Health Organization uh, declared that uh, depression now affects 350 million people worldwide, and it's it's, uh, increasingly or nearly becoming, it's going to be the biggest cause of disability in the world uh, within the next few years if trends keep going. So in the UK, one in four people uh, will experience a mental health problem in any given year. Uh, I mean, those sorts of figures show that talking about mental distress and mental health is not some sort of marginal concern, right? This is something that affects everybody, everybody in the country, either directly or through somebody you know, perhaps a, fr- a friend or a family member. But, but saying that it uh, affects everyone, that doesn't mean that, that the burden of mental distress is evenly distributed, it's not. If you are from a, a, a lower income, if you have a lower income or your family has a lower income, you're more likely to uh, suffer from mental distress. If you have uh, debt, you're much more likely to suffer from mental distress. Uh, and if you're unemployed, uh, the risks are even worse. There was a report released by the Mental Health Foundation last year uh, that said that 87% of unemployed people uh, have experienced a mental health problem. 87%, and that compares with 66% for those in paid employment and 53% uh, of retired people. Uh, And so those are sort of startling statistics, but they're also, in some ways, they present a sort of paradox or a a problem. what is the difference in the experience between somebody who's unemployed and somebody who's retired that makes the the, the, the increased risk of mental distress so much higher? Uh, there's probably a lot of reasons for that to do with with, with poverty, etc. Uh, but I also think there's probably something in there about the level of stigmatisation that's been attached to unemployed people in an increasing fashion, actually, over the last 10 years, And we have these sort of benefit streets and these sort of what they call poverty porn programmes. Uh, you know, the, the, the level of stigmatisation must have some sort of role. Uh, I mean, another another factor in the rise in mental distress probably has something to do with the crisis of 2008, the, the economic problems that have come from then, and of course austerity, right? Um, in England since 2008, there's been a 20% increase of referrals to mental health teams, and during that period there's been an 8% Reduction in services, right? This obviously has some sort of effect. Uh, but the fact that, that debt and unemployment have an effect means that we can't, we can't reduce this problem to, to austerity. There must be, it must be wider social, uh, uh, social circumstances having an effect. It's not just austerity. We need to ride in our frame a little bit from austerity. And that's why we called this, let's talk about mental health and capitalism because uh, we want to think about the sort of wider impact on mental health, of the way that we organise our society uh, and our economics, even. Uh, OK, so that's the sort of general thinking. We want to widen our frame a little bit, just from not just austerity to, 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 to the more general organisation of society and those, the impacts on, on mental health that come from that. Now I've introduced our thinking. I can point out why we've got such an appropriate and great panel. <laughs> uh, first, we'll start with John Ashworth. He's not here. But when he does come, John is the uh, MP for Leicester South and the Shadow Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. Uh, Most probably the next health minister, which is why it's such an interesting panel uh, to to have. Um, Next we've got Rick Burgess. Uh, Rick's from a group called Recovery in the Bin. Which are, which are a critical theory, uh, an activist collective formed of uh, mental health service users. Rick's also a co-founder of Manchester Disabled People Against Cuts, and is an executive officer of the Greater Manchester Coalition of Disabled People. Very, he's a very busy man. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's great to have have Rick here as well, actually, because... A lot of the pressure to think about, to try and think about mental health and mental distress in a different way is coming from service user groups such as, uh, as Recovery in the Bin. Uh, I really want uh, John Ashworth to be here to hear Rick's contribution, so perhaps, we, perhaps that will happen. <laughs> we'll know. Um, next, we have Lynn Sigal. Lynn is a longtime socialist and feminist activist. Uh, but she's also a professor of psychology and gender studies at the Department for Psychosocial Studies at Bergbeck. Psychosocial studies, that is exactly what we're trying to talk about here. Um, uh, But I also want to point out, Lynn's latest book is called uh, Radical Happiness, Moments of Collective Joy. I'd recommend it. But also I think later on we're going to talk a little bit about what, what should we do about this crisis? What are the solutions we should put forward? And I really hope we don't just talk about policy, but we also talk about the importance of things such as moments of collective joy and moments of collectivity and uh, the importance of that. Uh, and last but not least, we have Rebecca Winson, uh, who's an activist, an organiser and, and a writer. She currently works as an organiser for the New Economics Foundation, has previously been a trade union uh, organiser. Uh, Rebecca also writes very perceptively about uh, the link between mental health and class, and and also our own experiences of mental health services. And so we're we're hoping between the panel, we've got a range of different uh, perspectives, uh, and hopefully the contributions will uh, meld together very well. Uh, We're going to do a round of contributions to start off with. Hopefully John Offer will walk through the door and join in at some point. Uh, And the first round, I want to ask the the panel to talk about um, what's going on with this increased incidence of mental health? What's causing it? How, how's the best way for us to think about it? What's the best way to frame this, this problem uh, the, uh, of, of a mental health crisis? So each person's gonna talk for about five to 10 minutes. Uh, Lynn says she might be 15 minutes. We'll cut, in, we'll cut into John Ashworth's time. He won't have much to say. <laughs> so I'll hand over to Lynn, and if you could talk for uh, 10 minutes.
1: Thanks, Keir. Um, He's only just told us what we're meant to be talking about. (laughs) Yes, so I'm here to talk about misery because I've just written a book about happiness and collective joy. And uh, it's the lack of collective joy that ties in closely to the misery of the moment, the rising misery. Oh, you want me to stand up? Oh, really? Oh, okay. The rising misery of the moment. So, (laughs) we need to talk about mental health. Indeed, can we stop talking about mental health? Because every day in our paper we can read about a new crisis, young women cutting themselves up uh, for 42% in the last few decades, suicides mounting mostly amongst young men and, indeed, young people overall in Britain said to be amongst the unhappiest in the world. That's amazing, isn't it? I'm not quite sure how they gather these statistics, but you can find it in mind and from who and who, as that's the World Health Organization, as Kia just said, has said... This is a global epidemic. It seems a particular epidemic in Britain, even more in the States probably, but it's a global epidemic said to be the second main epidemic, the second main disease uh, of the present. So this, from a system, capitalism, that's meant to be creating us all as happy consumers. We are happily consuming something But that's Prozac and what's followed from it, from all those pharmaceutical uh, companies promoting their uh, latest drugs for us. But interestingly, I came of age precisely when we were questioning the very concept of mental illness, saying more or less that there was no such thing, that it was always better seen as a social pathology rather than any sort of individual disease. So... We had Foucault, Guattari, Bazzaglia in Italy and, of course, above all here, Lange making sustained attacks on all the political biases behind those labelled as mentally ill, saying that actually This was being applied to people who just couldn't fit in, who couldn't um, uh, get with what was expected of them by the social norms. So madness then isn't an individual pathology, but a social pathology. And in that liberatory 60s moment, we all loved Lang. We all actually, he brought many people to the left. He put on the dialectics of liberation conferences bringing revolutionaries from around the world where... For two weeks, men strutted the platform, there weren't any women there, and uh, he was describing the obvious and the way forward. In fact, the way forward was going to be very much from those waiting in the wings who weren't on the platform like the women, and Angela Davis and other people who were sitting silently in the wings. So um, so what Lang said then is that today, um, a child born today, he says this is in uh, 67, the day of the, the year of the Dialectics of Liberation Conference a child is 10 times more likely to enter a mental hospital than they are to go to university, which shows that uh, we are driving our children mad. Well, not anymore, they're not likely to go into a mental hospital because we've closed them down. They've been long since closed. And if they're going to go into institutions at all, most of them are going to go into prisons. They're going to be incarcerated rather than find themselves in a mental hospital. And Lange couldn't quite get it right about capitalism. He said it's to do with our senescent capitalist system, which is just uh, collapsing all around us. In fact, of course, it was incredibly reinvigorating itself. And we're about to see the rise of an ever more invasive form of neoliberal capitalism... Another thing that Lang got wrong was to see it as a problem generated inside the family, particularly by those overpossessive mothers in the family. Well, of course, they're not there anymore either. They're all out of work. And just at this moment, when we're expecting more than ever the family and the community to take on the burdens of care for anyone in need of care, they're not there because we now have a two-earner family, a gig economy, where the whole care system is in complete uh, crisis. So that today goes along with the mantras of neoliberalism, coming along with uh, Thatcher and the fiscal capitalism that she represented in which there's a complete contempt for vulnerability and dependency all that is is repackaged as pathology as you know not really doing enough to enhance your own value to all the time uh, be looking after number 1 to make sure that number 1 is able to succeed so it's hardly surprising then that um, <clears throat> the idea that anyone who isn't a winner is going to start seeing themselves as a loser, and that we have this one in four people who see themselves as failures and who are 20 percent of whom are uh, known to be um, suicidal. Now Politicians are aware of this problem. They're aware of the problems of rising stress, rising um, (coughs) mental ill health. And Theresa May says she's going to make it a priority. How is she going to make it a priority? By removing bursaries from uh, mental health workers, by speeding up, if not abolishing all the... (coughs) the speeding up the way the resources for mental care have been operating as well as um, uh, removing many of the um, public resources that had once been available for treating mental health. So we're living in a time which the radical geographer Danny Doyling describes as peak inequality, and I mentioned that yesterday. I don't know if people heard me where I said... What we're living in is the exact reversal of the promise of the welfare state. We're living in a society now where people are, can actually expect, if they're poor, to be worse off from cradle to grave. That is, higher rates of childbirth, of death at childbirth. Um, higher rates of uh, youth uh, crime and suicide due due to the 600 youth centres and more that uh, have been abolished. Mothers across the board suffering from ever higher degrees of stress now that they alone see themselves as responsible for their children and also producing these perfect children who can survive in this world and so on. Those doing the care work at home caring often for elderly relatives, often women, uh, doing that job, but not only women, particularly if poor, get no relief from the full-time work they're doing and so increasingly suffering from both physical and um, mental health problems. So all all this has been reported across the board with, with... Leading mental health workers such as, for instance, David Bell, who's one of the leading clinicians at the NHS Tavistock Portman Trust, although everyone I know who's worked there has been forced to leave because they just can't bear anymore not being able to provide the services that they think are needed there. He says that he has seen the most rapid deterioration in provision over the last 20 years and... um, he says, we have taken an extraordinary step backwards in our attitudes to people with mental illness. They may no longer be labelled as mad. It may no longer be such a stigma, although it is a stigma, really, but not in a different way. They're more likely to be seen as lazy or inadequate or something like that. So they better keep popping those pills. And. Um, And he says that what's happening is that there's no continuity of care, that the mental health wards have been closed to such an extent that those that still survive are so overcrowded that they just can't provide any adequate care of any sort, but also that people are rushed in and out only to return again in no time at all because they're not receiving any adequate care or... Just as bad or worse, the closing of day centres, the closing of resources for um, those who are wanting to help themselves with other mental care users, all those resources getting closed down. In Islington we have two daycare uh, (coughs) centres for mental health, both of which are under threat now. Under threat now because councils are being cut by 40%. That is half of their resources. Exactly when the demands on them are probably doubling. So you can see the situation is just appalling. And as I say, it's totally appalling for those in need of care. And it's completely appalling for those trying to provide the care because they know they can't do it. They know they just won't... There's also no continuity of care because they get moved on or if they're visiting patients, uh, clients at home, then literally some of them are seeing 60 a day. They're on uh, zero-hours contracts. They're paid nothing for going between homes and so on. They cannot do the job, which supposedly they're meant to be doing, and that's, of course, to do as well with the privatisation of uh, the outsourcing of care so as whereas um even in the 90s 90 percent of um domiciliary care for instance was provided by the council as well as backup support for that now that's 10 percent these are extraordinary figures aren't they people like um danny doiling say things that are happening today would have seemed unbelievable just a few years ago. Of course it's been building for the 30, 40 years since um, (coughs) Thatcher and the rise of the right, but it's got a lot worse since the credit crunch, you know, since that coalition government actually um, started doing things, some of which, though, were pioneered by Labour in the outsourcing of care and the privatisation of care. So I'll wind up now just to say that whereas in the 60s and 70s it was liberation that we all wanted, today I think one of the key issues is the issue of care and that that is sort of the politics of the moment, the politics of the moment that we can see in the politics of resistance, whether it's Black Lives Matter or, or working against austerity, working against homelessness, because as Keir said, those figures are overwhelming as to who is likely to be suffering the most stress and to be having the breakdowns. It comes quite early, by the age of 14, that. <laughs> you can tell who are the main people who are going to be suffering from uh, mental ill health. And they are children from poorer families, children from families that have been homeless and moved from home to home. And, you know, all the other signs of poverty and the effects of uh, austerity and... and, and um, um, Uh, what you call the zero-hours contracts and so on, the gig economy. It's all those things that have created this constant stress that is destroying families, destroying our ability to care for each other. So I would say that, you know, care, as Naomi Klein says, for instance, at the end of um, No is Not Enough, and she uh, talks about the Leap Manifesto in which she says, where we need to begin today is from prioritising care for each other and care for the world. And actually this links up entirely with green politics and the, the fact that we're all on a route to nowhere for our grandchildren unless we really do realise that the market is driving us all to destruction. So that's why I
0: Thanks, Lynn uh, although I did ask you to end on an up rather than oh, okay. destruction of the world.
1: I'm
0: joking, I'm joking. Where we are now, <laughs> theme of
1: destruction.
0: It's true, we're gonna do another round where we're gonna propose some solutions, so don't get too downhearted. Um, Rick, do you wanna to... Okay So yeah, if, Rick if you wanna talk for ten minutes?
2: Do, do I have to stand as well? <laughs> yes, do I do you want me Sit to stand on or <laughs> Oh. Um, is this okay or do you want me to stand? I, I, <laughs> I have no idea what the answer was um, <laughs> okay uh, so uh, well, recovery in the bin is 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 a, a group of of nefarious people um, uh, we 're very interested in in establishing a, a social model of mental distress that that feeds very much off the social model of um, disability um, uh, One of our key sort of images is a repurposing of. The recovery star which is to change all of the the names the, the labels around the outside which in the normal recovery paradigm are about the individual how are you doing to you know s- stay washed or make appointments or you know do this do that instead we surround the the, the recovery paradigm with poverty um, inequality racism because we want to make very clearly the point that as this you know uh do, do we do we need to really argue that much that the the current social economic system is bad for you um, and its particular guise of neoliberalism really bad for you um, and i think i'd like would like to we we talked a bit about um in recovery in the bit and uh, <laughs> <laughs> we had a conference with psychologists, and this is where we, we got the president of, at the time, Peter Kinderman, uh, British Psychological Society. We told him he had to boycott the DWP. He refused. What can you do? Um, uh, talk about the concept of democide, which is, okay, but you know what genocide is? It's not, it's not good, but that's when you go out and just really just kill people. That's when a government just goes out and kill you. Um, Democide is kind of, if you imagine, genocide is murder. But as we all understand, there's degrees of harm, there's manslaughter, there's attempted murder, there's serious assault. So we've got this kind of paradigm of where, well, the government's doing what governments do. Some of them sometimes do a genocide. But there's nowhere else in between. There's nowhere we can talk about that's licensed to say, hang on, this government is harming us this government doesn't like us, this government is, is conspiring to get rid of us in that grey area is where democide lives it's, it's an act of government or associated corporations to harm the people up to and including death and I'd say at this point we're not just suffering austerity or neglect particularly in the social security system, the DWP this is active harm They've killed a lot of disabled people, and they're not stopping. I've sat across from the ministers. They don't give a fuck. Okay? So first rule of this, the only change is going to be regime change. A Tory government will not stop doing this. We have to get rid of the Tory government, full stop, no question. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that was a, that was the speech for the Tory conference. Damn it! <laughs> um, other thing, uh, I'd just like to say quickly. I, I think it'd be more interesting to like have everybody else talk and stuff, and find out why you're all here. Because this is fucking like full house. Um, is this all conference? Is this locals? Is this just people who are really into this? This is fantastic. I mean, you know, we have meetings and stuff all the time, and to get this many people coming is really good, so well done, everyone here, for coming. Um, but just so the thing, uh, some of our members have uh, created a service users uh, survey and report and manifesto called Kindred Minds. It's black and minority ethnic service users, a report, and a manifesto for social justice. And shockingly, <laughs> or not, as the case may be, um, The rich psychiatrists and psychologists and the professional bodies haven't particularly helped with this. They are fundraising to properly publish and launch this report. So really, I'm just begging you, okay? So what I want everyone here to do is to Google Kindred Minds and GoFundMe. You'll find their GoFundMe page. They're about £600 into £3,000 target they need. And this is Not not the first of its kind, but the first in this era of black and minority ethnic service users themselves doing the work, doing the research, doing a report, doing a manifesto. And I want to put that up here, and I want everyone here, if you can, throw some money at it, great. If you can't, share it, send it to someone rich, you know, who wants to get rid of their money. I'm sure we've all got friends like that. (laughs) So that's kindred minds... GoFundMe, please do it. We've got to help each other because the help is not coming from above. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Rick. That's that's great. So, Becky, do you want to... Becky, your contribution.
3: Yeah. Um, Does anyone want me to stand up? Okay. No, that's fine, I'm sure. I know what it's like being at the back. Um... Okay. Okay. Um, OK, so um, my background is in the trade union movement. I was a workplace organiser there, been a housing and feminist campaigner. I currently work for the New Economics Foundation as an organiser and I'm a writer as well, although I don't do as much of that as I'd like anymore. Um, But I'm here today to speak less about my work and more about something I don't often speak about publicly, um, which is mental health. My experiences of it um, as a working class woman. Um, I feel really lucky and humbled to be on this panel. I don't consider myself by any means an expert on anything we're talking about, or even one of the worst victims of um, the mental health crisis or even of capitalism. Um, But in my work, I spend a lot of time with those people who are, and more importantly, my friends and my family are undoubtedly victims. So I hope I do them justice today by speaking, um, and I also hope I manage to get my words out without losing my voice, because I've got a horrific cold at the moment. So sorry if that happens. Um, I was asked specifically to give my thoughts on how class intersects with mental health and I didn't really know where to start with that, apart from to say this. If you're working class, under this government especially, if you don't currently have a mental health condition, you're only one pay cut, one benefits cut, one benefits investigation, one eviction away from having a mental health condition and you know it. The ideology that has oppressed my class since before I was born is one which doesn't just deliberately put us into this situation. It relies on us being in this situation. Every extra suicide that's happened as a result of austerity in this country isn't suicide. Those in charge are fully aware of what those policies do. They are murders. Now, I've been told by my therapist that perhaps this black-and-white view isn't that useful to my recovery from depression. (laughs) And I can see that point. But I can't get past the point, the, 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 the fact, that under capitalism, it feels totally logical for me and the people I know to be depressed. In fact, it feels like capitalism wants us to be depressed and it wants us to be anxious. So you take the way our housing market functions under capitalism. So after I left the council estate where I grew up, I moved eight times in five years. So each time was either due to a rent increase or eviction. The place I live in now, I can't get a long-term tenancy on, not for want of trying. So although I know I'm going to get married next year, I don't know if there'll be a threshold for me to carry my husband over. Although I know I want kids, I know I will essentially have to ask my landlord's permission to have them. Thousands of people are paying extortionate rent, thousands more can't get on council waiting lists, thousands of others are on the street, no one in a private rental can say that they really know their landlord won't jack up the rent, kick them out or fail to make basic repairs and increasingly social renters like my parents who used to a few years ago be on a fairly secure housing position, they're in the same boat as well. There isn't one single anti-anxiety medication or cognitive behavioural therapy that I can think of which is going to put minds at rest about any of that. So who wouldn't have panic attacks? And if you look at the workplace and how the attitude we're all forced into taking to it is essentially a list of depressive symptoms. No hope that things will get better, no pleasure or interest in doing daily tasks, no reward from them, no real connection to the human beings around you, no appetite to try and make things better, because what you're up against is so overwhelming, it's almost impossible to manage anything else. Millions of people are caught in gig economy or zero hours work, making millions of pounds for a few other people, earning a pittance themselves and being largely unable to do a damn thing about it. It is so difficult to get a phone call off my little brother and try and explain to him why he should have to get out of bed in the mornings and why he should try to do that when the job he's getting out of bed for works him until he's aching from his feet to his head and then pays him less per hour than it charges its customers for a meal. If society says you 're not worth enough money to live on, who wouldn't feel worthless? So when we 've got an epidemic of insecure housing and an academic, a- epidemic of exploitative jobs, it's not that much of a surprise to me that we've got an epidemic of mental health um conditions. I've lost my place now sorry um, but our situation is so bad, not just because of the causes of mental health com- problems. But because of the way they're dealt with, which is to say they're not really dealt with, not for most people. I'm not an expert on the NHS, but I know this, I'm only currently getting therapy because a bunch of my friends got together and put money in an envelope and that enabled me to pay for private sessions. Those private sessions, that therapy is not available on the NHS in my area. It does not exist. If you've got depression and you live in Basingstoke, there is no such thing as free at the point of care for healthcare, unless you're on medication, unless you just wanna be on medication. There's a woman who lives close by to me, who's in a far worse situation than me. Her uh, kids were taken away from her because she's got severe mental health, she's got severe depression. She couldn't cope with looking after her kids. The NHS and social services couldn't help her cope. She got her kids taken away from her. She recently tried to kill herself because of that. She got put in hospital. There were no beds available to put her into a secure unit or anything like that. She was discharged to the same amount of care that she was getting before all of that happened. Cuts after cuts put thousands of people in situations like this. But I do want to add, although I know that you asked us to end on a bit of an uplifting tone. (laughs) My little brother was in a similar situation to that. He also tried to kill himself. And that was under a Labour government. And he ended up in a police cell rather than a secure unit because there was no beds for him. And that was back in 2009. So we can't talk about this as if the only answer is regime change. Because it isn't. And I'm in full hope that a Corbyn government will deliver a much better mental health service than we've ever had before in this country. But we do need to be mindful that it is not a given that Labour governments always deliver on this. Um, And also to end on a bit of a hopeful tone. My therapist keeps telling me I have to look for hope. And (laughs) she gets a lot of rants directed at her. Um, Luckily, I've got that. So I was lucky that when I first got depression at 18, there was a well-funded NHS to help. But what really fixed me was finding the trade union movement. So finding a part of society that really valued me, that valued others, that helped people, that was a communal space where working-class people of all genders, races, nationalities, sexualities, abilities, give each other the dignity and respect that most of society doesn't afford us, that was brilliant for me. And I can remember it like it was yesterday. One of the first genuine smiles in my early 20s was when my branch secretary showed me our branch's really beautiful, intricately hand-embroidered union banner and told me it was as much mine as it was the people who's created it 50 years ago. that's a bit geeky, isn't it? But I really believe that alongside a shed load of NHS funding and change to work and housing policies and more, that spaces that give people pride and hope and solidarity and general general genuine control over the way they live their lives are the way to start fixing the mess they're in. And it does feel like we're part of a movement that's on the cusp of getting that if we just push a bit harder. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Becky. That was that was fantastic. Um, so, John, we've just been um, doing sort of five to ten minute contributions, and we're sort of talking about you know how should we think about this 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 mental health crisis and the increased incidence of mental health. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. all
4: right. So, um,
0: well, thank you very much, and thank
4: you very much for inviting me back to the World Transform to make a few uh, uh, remarks. I first spoke at the World Transform last year at the uh, at the Brighton. Uh, conference on a similar sort of theme, addiction services and the impact that uh, those with uh, addiction issues in society and what support they're getting in society, and uh, we explored that a little bit with uh, Russell Brand a year ago, so it's, uh, and I may touch upon a little bit about addiction as well, because I think there's a connection with what is happening in the crisis in addiction services with some of what the, disc- the discussion is about here, and uh, this afternoon and apologies, I'm late I am as I'm sure you can imagine and appreciate I'm running around doing um, uh, hundreds of different fringe events over at the conference and speaking at different meetings and so on and so and uh, so I, 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 I do hope you'll forgive me for my discourtesy in getting here so late. but I was determined to come here because I think you've hit upon a really, really important and crucial issue, which is the way in which our economy is currently structured is making us sick. And my ambition as somebody who aspires to be the next Secretary of State for Health and Social Care of the nation, uh, and hopefully that will come sooner rather than later if the Tory government collapse and we get that Jeremy Corbyn Labour government, but uh, that's what we hope anyway. And I'm glad somebody clapped and cheered that bit. (laughs) 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 Is... Look, there's lots which is wrong with the running of the National Health Service under the Tories. We know it's been cut, we know it's been uh, squeezed financially, we know it's understaffed, we know parts of it are being sold off and privatised. And all that will have to come to an end, quite, and quite rightly. I want to bring it to an end, that's what I've got to do. But if you want to improve the health and well-being of the people who live in the country, you've got to do more than just fully resource and fully staff the NHS and have it all provided in-house important as all that is. We've got to do some more <laughs> fundamental things as well. Because at the moment we are making people ill because we are running an economy which is increasingly about insecure work, zero hours contracts, uh, temporary work. We're running an economy where housing costs <laughs> and lack of secure tenancies for people and their children is, I believe, contributing to an explosion in mental health problems. We're running an economy where we're grinding poverty and where working-class people and working-class communities are not only pushed from pillar to post constantly by the government bureaucracy, they are stifled at every opportunity as well. Whether it's from the restrictions on universal credit whether it's from the sh- restrictions on access to legal aid, whether it's cutbacks around certain um, supposedly ability-related benefits, if I can put it in that phrase, where there is a prejudice, actually, against those with mental health conditions when, when, when uh, people are forced into quite undignified, inhumane in many uh, circumstances, assessments by capitals of, of, of the world. And you can see across all these different areas of the public sector, and there'll be many others that I'm sure many of you all want to raise in the discussions and contributions. You can see how the way in which ju- the way in which the state, as it is being run on, on an austerity and neoliberal agenda, and the economy more generally, is contributing to this huge explosion in mental health problems, ranging from anxiety and depression, and we've heard some very uh, incredibly moving testimony on that, to some very very serious problems at the other end. We are living in a society where I think something like 800,000 children at the moment are uh, living with some mental health problem and not getting any of the support and care that they deserve. Because one of the most disgraceful cuts that I believe this Tory government have implemented is actually the cuts to child and adolescent mental health services. The cuts to eating disorder services. Um, uh, the fact that if you are in a mental health crisis or an eating disorder crisis as a young woman, and it affects young men as well, but it does proportionate, it tends to be more women, but there are men who are affected by this. You can often be sent 300 miles away because there are no beds available in your local area. If you're in a mental health crisis or an eating disorder crisis, being sent 300 miles away, sometimes um, a far away Scotland, I'm not going to think against Scotland, it's a very nice country, but you know, sent very far away from your friends and family. That is no way to treat someone who is in crisis and needs support to be sent to the other end of the country on their own, lonely, not knowing what is going to happen, uh, and so on. But because of the deep cuts to child and adolescent mental health services and the broader cuts to mental health services generally across the board, that that, uh, story or that uh, example is not uh, an atypical example. It's sadly a very, very typical uh, example. So we have got to do something, and it is about putting the funding in, and it is about rebuilding child and adolescent mental health services. It is about stopping certain uh, certain tier one and two, tier two child health services being handed out to private private providers, private contracts. We're just interested in profit, not interested in providing a public service like the Virgin Cares and the Circos and all this lot who are getting more and more children's health contracts. It's about ending that, and we will end that if we get into government. But it's also, I believe, about a major expansion of uh, of mental health services in the country. 70 years ago, Nyren Bevan created the National Health Service, the Labour government created the National Health Service. And I do take your point, is that you cannot rely on Labour governments to resolve these issues, because for 70 years, mental health services have been neglected by governments of all uh, political persuasions. And if you actually look back to the speeches that Nyren Bevan made, at the time and it's all about hospitals it's about community health and some of the words some of the descriptions that were used in them days would be considered quite offensive today I mean he didn't mean to be offensive he was a a child of his time if you like but I think it does indicate and remind us that when the National Health Service was created this area was not given didn't wasn't given the priority and probably didn't have the broader understanding of the issues anyway, which is why it was never given priority. But the consequence of that is that throughout 70 years, mental health services have never really been given proper support. But when we see the, the explosion in mental health conditions in society, I think expanding mental health services is, if you like, the next frontier of NHS policy. And it's one in which we have got to really get a grip of and we've got to go to the, uh, the country whenever that next election comes and be able to say, actually, you know, we're not going to have uh, young people sent 300 miles away. We're not going to have young people treated on wards, which are supposed to be for adults. I mean, I've been to a mental health... Uh, I've been to many mental health um, uh, providers, hospitals, residential hospitals. I tell you, I mean, <laughs> they have had no investment. You know, I've gone into hospitals where it is literally... They are like something off the, um, you know, you know, when you see the sort of um, things on the tele- you know, t- t- television, like series of what, you know, what they were like in the 70s or something like that. Because of a lack of investment, some of them are really quite appalling. And that lack of investment has m- creates an environment which doesn't help you recuperate and uh, 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 and he- doesn't help you be cared for. Actually, reinforces um, uh, uh, many of the issues that uh, are concerning you and facing you. And also what you are seeing as well because of the way in which the pressures of austerity or neoliberalism or just just the way in which the economy is working because of the pressures that people, that puts people under. It means we're seeing increasing numbers of people using different substances to essentially self-medicate. But we know if that is the route that you go down and you self-medicate you can get yourself into some very very serious problems and that's and I talked about that here last year, and I, and I know this for myself, but my, I know it from my own personal circumstances, because my dad was an alcoholic. He used to self-medicate. He was a working class man, low wage job, uh, trying to survive in this world that we're in. And he was an alcoholic. That's the way he got through life. He, and he, I mean, he essentially drank himself to death. He died um, because of his alcoholism. And he never got any help and support. And that, that was, he died, he died eight, eight, eight years ago. But, <laughs> What is actually happening now when it comes to addiction services is that you've got uh, addiction services being cut back by millions. So much so that in many communities, drug and alcohol addiction treatment centres are cutting back. Uh, In London, there are now no detox beds in any NHS hospital in London because of the cuts to to drug and alcohol services. As more cuts come, another 30 million cuts are going to come this year. We've got the the highest number of deaths on record, uh, for, uh, related to drug uh, misuse. We've got 600,000 people in the country with an alcohol dependency who would need some specialist intervention, who are not getting it. And the numbers getting alcohol uh, treatment have plummeted by about 12,000 in the last couple of years. Uh, and actually, because of the way in which the Tories have outsourced drug and alcohol addiction treatment services... Um, uh, Uh, there's actually a crisis in staff because staff in the NHS don't want to go out and work in those services because they don't have the security of staying in the NHS because these services, in many cases, have been outsourced and um, not quite privatised because, in fairness, it tends to be charities who win these contracts rather than the virgins because the virgins don't think there's any money in it. But nonetheless, it means that if you work for the NHS, you want to stay in the NHS family earning an NHS pension and so on. So you don't want to go and work uh, for the charity, because you've, your, your job security and your pension is is worse than if you would stayed in the NHS uh, family. So there's a real crisis in some of these services, which are that should be, which are there not only to support the most vulnerable in society, but are, su- are supporting the most vulnerable in society who are really affected by the way in which the economy works and are trying to deal with the pressures, the economic pressures they are under by uh, going down the road of um, self. Uh, Medication. It's why I, as as somebody who aspires to be uh, the health secretary, don't just want to sort of throw the money into the NHS and all that. It's that. It's why I believe health policy isn't just about the Department of Health. It's about every single aspect of government. It's about the quality of homes that we live in and the quality of housing that people live in. It's about the air that we breathe. It's about access to green space in our communities you take away green space from a community and it impacts on the mental health of the people who live in that community. And these are obvious things. These are common sense things. But the consequence of all these things happening at once to, in society is this mental health, these, are these mental health problems. So I strongly believe that the real test of a socialist health policy, which is what I would be responsible for, is ensuring that every aspect of the public sector from schools and early intervention, to housing, to en- environmental policy and climate change, to benefits policy and economic policies more generally, should have health running through it. And actually, if we can have a health uh, a health running through all of that, that is how you can deal with some of the mental health issues uh, in in society. Um, so, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and I just want to finish on a broader point, because I was very struck by your point about, you know, things that didn't work on the Labour governments. Yeah, I mean, Labour governments uh, have done great things, Labour governments are areas where they didn't do great things, but uh, you know, (laughs) you've got to believe it's going to be different. And we've got to provide hope to people that it's going to be different. And this year is the 70th anniversary of the National Health Service. You know, a National Health Service offering hope in place of fear, as Iron Bevan said, to lift the shadows from millions of homes. Well, there is a new shadow across people's homes. It's not infectious disease. It's not diphtheria and TB and polio like it was in 1948. It's these mental health problems that we're discussing today. So my big passion, and I suppose my commitment to you at this meeting, this, this, uh, this uh, early evening, is the shadow of mental health illness will, I hope, hope, we'll do all we can to lift that shadow for millions of homes as best we possibly can. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, John, that was great. Uh, I wanna go out into the audience soon, but I, I just want to, to ask the panelists uh, to make a couple, of, a couple of comments about, you know, potential solutions, we've actually heard quite a lot about potential solutions from John already, but the the way we may think about, you know, how do we address this, not just in the short term, but, you know, leading into the the longer term?
1: Those solutions, though, are simply across the board. We know they do begin with housing with unemployment, with the gig economy, with all those things that are rendering life so impossible for so many people. And also, when feminists began back in the 1970s, second-wave feminists, we began by stressing care. And what we wanted then was a world that began from how we care for our children, how we care for each other, not how we build profits. That's where we wanted to begin. And, you know, we had all sorts of ways of thinking about that, which actually there are still feminist economists talking about today, not just Anne Pettifer, but people putting forward the F plan, you know, and they're saying we have to begin, as you say, by building the infrastructure. But we've also got to think about jobs and why it is that people are working all hours with no time at all to care. What? I said was we're actually returning everything to the family and to the community when there's nobody there in the family to do the caring work except for those in need of care and so we have to think of how to restructure the workforce without saying no work Paid work is the only thing that's important. It's care work. It's care work that we need. It's not necessarily any old growth, which is usually actually profits coming from finance, capital now. It's, it's a completely different way of looking at everything. But also, then, in terms of what we need provision for for care, we certainly are going to need more of those hospital wards that aren't packed to the gills, where people aren't forced out a day or so after they've come in. We need a variety of different sorts of therapy. You know, we need face-to-face, one-to-one therapy where people can feel valued, not just, you know, how can we get the right thoughts to get us back to work, as some CBT therapy is. I'm not against all CBT therapy, but nevertheless we need a whole variety of therapy. We also need resources for those trying to improve their lives and communities. I can remember during the miners' strike, I would meet miners' wives and they would say... They were so happy, actually. They were all on strike, and they were all very poor, but they were no longer taking the Valium. They were no longer sitting at home miserable because they really had a goal. They had something to work for, you know, and we see that with Sisters Uncut and that these women who've been most cut off you know, from any feelings of self-worth, suddenly get together and a hanging signs across bridges. You know about violence against women and so on. So it's all you know, building communities up in every way and community involvement. There's just so many different places we have to begin. You've got such a job on your hands, but I know that you can do it. I know you can do it.
0: Perfect. Thanks. Uh, Rick, do you want to um, just make, if you can, and, and feel free to sort of address whatever people have said, etc.
2: Sorry, I'll stand. I didn't, I didn't hear. Um, did the person needs to read lips. Would you like to move up closer? Is it easier then? Okay, I'm sorry I didn't, I didn't know. You didn't miss anything, really. Um, I just, you know, there used to be a department called the Department for Health and Social Services. Now... I think that's actually what it needs to be again, including social care. No part of that should be punitive. No part of that should be moralistic. And no part of that should be implementing universal credit. That is how you change things. Um, There may be someone here responsible for those kind of things. Who knows? Um, But that would be uh, really helpful because we can have aspirations, we can have words, we can even have more funding for mental health, but while this persecution through the social security system goes on, you're just just throwing money into a fire. You've got to put that fire out first. That's killed thousands of people. needs to stop. Thank you.
3: Uh, This is going to come out a bit garbled, I think. but for me, I think, apart from shed loads of funding into the NHS... And... Sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah. yeah. So I think, um, apart from shed loads of funding into the NHS, and and, and like you said, um, thinking about mental health as something that's solved across a load of different policy areas, not just w- within the NHS, um, for me, I think the biggest thing that needs to change is that we need to stop doing things in this paternalistic, um, top-down way in so many areas of our life. So... Personally, as an organiser, I see that when people really take control and have control over their lives and their work and their housing, um, they tend to be very happy, like the women in the miners' strike, who were actually getting on and doing something, even though they were in incredibly tough circumstances, they had agency over what was happening, and they had a voice. Um, and things like making sure that council tenants, for example, are balloted over what happens to their housing, not just when there's a big regeneration scheme, but as a matter of course, because we respect them enough to, to say, well, these are your homes, and you should have a say what's going on about them. Um, Yeah, that's that's all I've got to say, I think, on that.
0: (laughs) John, do you want to to respond to that, or should we go into the audience?
4: Just two very, very quick responses. Uh, I'm um, immensely flattered that you are um, wanting my department to become even bigger with more expenditure. (laughs) Um, 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 I'm not. I wouldn't. I'm not responsible for uh, universal credit. But I think it is a good point. I mean, you know, I talked about Bevan. The reason I'm going on about now Bevan because it is the 70th anniversary of the NHS. Um, But you know, Bevan was both minister for health and minister for housing, because that government recognised the connection between health and the conditions in which you live and i actually think being minister for health and housing has rather a nice ring to it but um <laughs> uh but uh, um uh but y- 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 you know th- they understood that uh um on the other part about this sort of uh, lack of agency and uh, you know your your beautiful lovely anecdote about uh the women the wives on the minor strike i mean that is right i mean and it it's, it should be unsurprising. I mean, perhaps we think about it now in a more medical sense or a clinical sense, but throughout, throughout uh, socialist thinking for the last 150 years, this is a, this is a, a lack of agency. The sense of alienation from uh, 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 what you produce is something which we should be very familiar with as socialists and in the Labour Party. So it's not, we've always known about this. We have perhaps haven't characterised it in a medical sense, but we've always understood the impact it has on individuals. And I think, you, and I think, if anything, what we are seeing in society now actually reinforces the analysis that we have had as socialists for uh, uh, you know for 100, 150 years or so. So, so, I, what do I take from that? I take from that confidence that our arguments are being demonstrably shown to be the correct ones. But actually, take the confidence that the tides of history are flowing in our direction and actually therefore what we therefore need to do if we if our analysis of society and the economy is correct which i'm absolutely convinced it is then we just need to fully understand what is our uh, correct response to that and that is about completely changing the way in which we run the economy and using the public sector to intervene in all aspects of the economy for the for the good and for the better of people's working and living conditions
0: So, so we should move to some contributions from the floor and we're going to unfortunately have to speak through the, through the uh, microphone. So I'll take, I'll take um, about three contributions.
5: Um, one of the issues that hasn't come up today um, is the mental health of those people who suddenly had the ground cut from underneath their feet when their pensions were taken away from them. They, there must be the most awful mental health crisis brewing there. And I wonder whether Labour is going to do anything to address that. Sorry? Yes, Not it wasn't just the women. I mean, men are also affected by working for years, hoping and planning for often release from dreadful jobs and a time to to just be themselves for a while and suddenly it's gone. And that, I, I'm one of the lucky ones. I, you know, the shelf dropped away just after I got my pension. But, you know, it, something has to be done about it.
1: Can I just say, um, you said the tides of history, we hope are flowing our way. But I think You know, we really have to face how bad a situation we're in. You know, that 90% outsourcing of care, it's going to be a huge struggle to get that back. I mean, we are in a much more brutal space than we were when I came of age in the 60s, 70s, where we were demanding more and more democratic control and more agency and so on. But actually, for the last 30 years, we've got less and less and less. And, And those... You know, finance capital in, in its tax havens has got its hands on so much. You know, it's right in there, in our bedrooms and kitchens and and and, and schools and so on. And it's, it's going to be a hell of a struggle through the courts and elsewhere, isn't it, to turn that tide around to actually get sovereignty for the state. You know, all this EU nonsense about sovereignty... Our states have so little sovereignty. Our local governments have so little sovereignty. We have so little control over the resources they're supposed to be supplying. How are we going to do that? Do
4: you
3: want
4: me to? Yeah. I mean, I'm an optimist. And you've got to be an optimist. And we haven't won anything as a labour movement without struggle. Now I don't want I don't want to sort of be sort of uh, uh, glibly dismissive of it because because your concerns are well made. When you look at the sort of the the way the economy we will inherit, we will inherit uh, an economy where I, right across the public sector, so many contracts have gone out. Uh, uh, you know, well, in, the, in the in the NHS, I'll I'll inherit a huge number of hospitals be, built on um, built on PFI contracts, which are paying out billions, often to firms firms set uh, in based in tax havens and so on. So. We're under no illusions that uh, uh, that, it, it, that any of this is going to be uh, easy or straightforward, or could be delivered overnight. You know, if anything, the f- you know, it's, it's going to take a bit of time, and we have to maintain people's um, confidence, and uh, uh, um, you know, not and hope that people are, p- are patient with us, not because we're not getting on with it, but because some of this is so complex, it's not going to happen within the first few weeks, <laughs> weeks or months. But we're absolutely determined. To make the changes we need to make, and I think actually, you know, obviously people can have people will have arguments about the the the, the, the timidity of previous uh, Labour governments, and I'm not I'm not one to go on about you know go look, look back in that sense you know, but I do think what is different today is that public opinion I think has shifted quite significantly on a lot of these types of issues. And I think public opinion, the public wants us to be radical and more interventionist than perhaps they did 20 years ago. I really do think there has been a shift. And, and, and that is why, for example, we had such an extraordinary election result. Yes, we didn't form a government. But, you know, when we came out with a set of policies which were very interventionist in the economy, they really did capture people's imagination and excitement. So I think although, yes, it will be a struggle and yes, it will be time-consuming and there will be uh, setbacks along the way, I am ultimately an optimist and I think we can get there in the end.
6: <laughs> okay. Um, I'm, a, I'm a, um, re- one of the happily retired individuals who got out before the boom came down. But uh, I'm an ex-civil servant and now a Labour ward organiser down in Whitstable. I think, taking up what John just said, if we, if a radical Labour government is going to succeed in the face of the most enormous problems, one of the ways you could start to do it is by doing it differently. We must not have the same top-down Whitehall knows best that we had for, well, the whole of the post-war period, if it's it's going back to your um, women and the um, miners strike, When, when people are involved in the things that they care about, they will take problems and they will take, they will understand issues because they're doing it themselves. It's not stuff that's being done to them. But the next Labour government must do it differently. It must be community-based, not Whitehall-based.
0: I'll just take a couple of contributions.
7: Hi, um, my name's Cam. I'm a trainee doctor based here in Liverpool, currently working in a GP practice. Just wanted to make two quick points based on things that have been said. The first was actually about the role of charity. I think there's a really interesting case study on how regressive charities can, can be uh, as part of this outsourcing sorting pr- sorting process. And also how the Labour Party have been involved in that. So uh, in Essex, um, huge, huge parts of their budget um, have for mental health, uh, the services have actually now been given to Mind, the charity, and the charity have been uh, putting forward a strategy uh, given to them by Lord Darcy 's policy unit, Lord Darcy, who's a Labour MP, and their strategy for, for slashing the costs is essentially to get rid of all the paid, skilled mental health workers and to make people's families and friends do the care work for free, which is disgusting. Um, Testify. And, the other thing I wanted to say, just to pick up on your point about control, um, the points at which I have seen people's mental health transition uh, from a position of disempowerment with absolutely no hope, to a position where they can move forward, is the point at which they have control over their life. And I think collective control and collective joy is the main way to do this. So, if the, the only reason I joined the Labour Party Uh, is because I knew that Jeremy Corbyn had a history of supporting self-organization and grassroots projects, right? Um, The only way that we are gonna get through this is if the Labour Party, when people start to self-organize and militantly self-organize in their workplaces and against their landlords, is if the Labour Party backs them. If the Labour Party gets behind and supports and becomes an engine for direct action and industrial action rather than shutting it down like they did in the 70s. So that's my challenge to you and that's my challenge to all of us in the Labour Party is to self-organise and to force the bureaucracy to back us and to use their resources so that we can take back control of communities because nobody's going to do it apart from us.
8: I'm involved in teaching um, and I just want to say it's very good to talk about control but Lynn also talked about vulnerability and we need spaces in which we can be vulnerable and the idea that control is the answer to mental distress I think might be a little bit misleading I'm sure I'm not the only person who was really moved to hear Rebecca Minson as the only person Winson, sorry as the only person on the panel who talked about yourself, who talked about your own experience of therapy. So the big question is, not just resources, but resources for what, right? When I was teaching at Sussex University, one of the mature students who came in said she had left being a mental health nurse in the NHS because she found a notice in her office saying, in times of staff cuts, increase medication. That led her to walk out of the building, right? as Lynn said, there's been a Prozac nation. There's been the idea that drugs can make you happy. And some of us got very excited when, about 10 years ago, I think it was, suddenly the government realized that drug-based therapy wasn't working. So they said, we will have more talking-based therapy. And those of us involved in therapy and psychoanalysis got very, very excited. At last people were gonna be allowed to talk about what they were feeling, and they were gonna be given. oh no, it was CBT. And CBT, although in some cases it can be effective, is now being proved over the longer term to be counterproductive, because it instructs you to be positive. So it is the disease of which it purports to be the cure, right, so my question to all of you would be, you want more money, sure, we want to improve the livelihoods of everybody so that they do not fall ill under the pressure of the duress and the horror of their lives, but what therapies do we want what for, what what's what are we offering what is it that we think people most need
1: <laughs> I wanted to ask how the panel feels about um, I suppose they would be considered to be holistic or complementary uh, mental health therapies, Um, not just talking therapies, but also things like arts and music and sport and things that can be considered um, sort of therapeutic in a complementary way to the sort of conventional medical model of uh, psychiatry and psychology.
0: Uh, I'll just take one more contribution and we'll go back to the panel, have a round, and then we'll come out again, hopefully.
9: Me, myself, I've been through the mental health system. I, I've gone from the suicidal state to get... I got left out by the mental health system. At first, I was very angry and aggressive with them because I thought they failed me. But now I look at it and look back at it and think, am I down under crisis just as much as... What we're under crisis, the professionals are in crisis, as well as the service users are in crisis, and it's how we deal with both of them, because you heard about all the professionals, now we were getting anxiety, depression, We also heard about all the service users that are suffering, the only way to do it, is that it took me about three years to take my life around, as well as adjusting being in a wheelchair at the same time. But I overcome it, and it was hard and challenging, but the way I looked at it is, I can't change the fact I'm in a wheelchair, but I can change everything else. But that's what we need to look at, is what can we change ourselves? We can't change everything. There's some things that are out of our control, but the things that are all in our control, that's what we should be looking at, and what we can change, and what we can put forwards. In mental health hospitals, what backwards, which I worked out the other day, is you've got artificial lighting, which is gonna cause depression. It's like the winter blues at night. So it's like they want us to be depressed because if they're giving you, in the winter, we get the winter blues for no vitamin D. But if that's the case, they should be giving, prescribing vitamin D medication into the clinics instead. But they're not, it's a vicious cycle. And I've seen that many people who have been here, being left arm, being fails, and bounced back. I'm one of the lucky ones where I broke the system myself no help, no support, no nothing. I've broken myself through pure willpower and being, there you go, get on with it. And having the choice to accept accept things. And you've got to reflect to move forward, and time's one of the biggest healers. But we need to be looking at getting people, service users to train the staff, the staff to train the service users and work together as a team and build it together as a community instead of Letting it all be on one side because that's just putting far too much pressure on one. Instead of taking a bit of one load and putting it on another load.
0: Let's go back to the panel now. I mean there's a lot of contributions there. You probably can't respond to any of them, but um, I I w I wanna start with you actually, Rick. (laughs) Seeing as you had the mic. If you've got if you want to respond to some of the, the comments.
2: Oh yeah. Well, um, well we are very much um, in recovery in the bin. Uh, like, if it works for you, um, it's, it's your your choice, your your view of of what helps. In the same way, we're not strictly no diagnosis or pro diagnosis. Some people prefer to have a diagnosis. Some people don't. But it's what works and helps you. So, in terms of complementary therapies, things like that, and you know, expressing yourself in art. Yeah, it won't work for, if it works for you, though it should get and it should get supported and respected. And and you said it really, you, you, what you actually put forth was was a perfect kind of version of this, the social model of disability. There's some things we can't change, our impairments we can't change, but we can change the society that disables us. Uh, so let's look at what we can change. Well, yeah, you 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 know, it's uh, there's a ramp there. You see, they've made it accessible. That's what you do, and, and that goes across into mental health. Um, and service users, well, there's a <laughs> the history of co-production, service users, peer support, uh, it, it exists. It often is a tick box exercise. It's often not sincerely done. Um, I think it's probably at a bit of a nadir at the moment. <laughs> it, it, pro- it needs to be revitalized, and there needs to be a, a rebalancing back towards the service user. And uh, for, the, for the, the services, for the professionals um, to really take it seriously and to listen and to change things. Because they'll have our support if they change things. I know they've got cut and they're in a bad situation. But if they work with us, we can be together against the forces of horror.
1: Well, I go next? Yes, well, the forces of horror have been growing. For some time, and that is that neoliberal rationality that it is every person for themselves. You know, that's really what Thatcher won and what Blair didn't really try to turn around. So there's something around stressing individual agency that's very important and stressing the community that's very important. And indeed, that is when people started working around mental health. At first, they were springing people from the mental hospitals. I can remember that. That was quite important. Then you got mad pride. All these things are very important, organising from below, organising together. But it's still going to be certain people who will be able to do that. other people who can't. They really are people with psychotic episodes and so on who are going to frighten those around them. You know, for Lang, mental health was glamorous and schizophrenia was glamorous. But unfortunately, as we know, many people suffering from mental stress are you know, incredibly hard to deal with. And, and so, you know, we, that's why we, we need such a variety of services and such space, you know, caring space in this new caring community that we're going to try and build, where we become a caretaking society, then it it will have to be care of so many different sorts, and we're going to have to need a lot more time, you know, so we can't all be working in these ridiculous 12-hour days if we're going to care for each other in the community, so that, you know, change every level, it is such a huge thing that we're going to try to do, but I guess different people will begin in different places, you know. With the community activists being supported and with different varieties and spaces for prolonged care. I mean, what's so wrong with the mental health provision now is it's so fast. You know, that's what um, uh, David i his other name, was talking about, who works at the Tavistock, that they're just in and out, there's no continuity, you know, and they need space, that's exactly what they need, to see the same people, to gradually gain confidence, because they have no trust, I mean, that's what a psychotic episode is, you have no trust in the world at all, the world be- seems a hellish place, and 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 you're surrounded by demons, so there's got to be time for you to realise those people around you aren't demons, they really are trying to help you, so, you know, a lot of different sorts of provision are going to be necessary it's it's a huge ask but uh, we're going to keep trying
3: and um, yeah just to come back on uh, some of the some of the points from the floor um in terms of uh, vulnerability versus control um, i think that's a really important conversation to have um i got better the first time i was depressed by fighting things and taking control and winding my HR department up no end for three years which was really fun but um, my little brother for example wouldn't have got better that way and it is really important that when we're talking about how to build this new mental health um, service and system that we that we recognize this Um, because I think quite a lot of the people who end up on these panels like this are like me and love winding up hr um, departments and love having a bit of a fight and and that's really not true for all of us and isn't true for all of us all of the time at all and um, in terms of what sorts of therapies and complementary therapies yeah um i think i can't think of any more of an alternative um medicine than the trade union movement which is what i had um and i think that the nhs should be giving those sorts of therapies a lot lot more attention than it does at the moment and um, i just wanted to pay particular attention to the point about Waspie because it really struck a chord with me because I hadn't thought of that problem in this way before and as soon as you said it I realised that my mum is one of those people who's going to have to wait years more for her pension and f- from the moment she found that out and I've only just re- is this is being recorded by the way any of this okay well mum you're finding the- my opinion on this out by listening to this recording her mental health has got worse since she realised that she was going to have to... It's something she talks about all the time as something that really upsets her. and that it's We're talking about having control. She's had control over her working life ripped away from her. She has to work. She hasn't got an option. Um, I can't think of a much worse situation to be in. And I, I don't actually know what Labour's position on this is, so it'd be really good. We, I know we, we're heaping department after department on you, so I know you might not be able to give... <laughs> A very detailed response to it, but really good to hear about if there's any sort of plans for Labour to make provision for these men and women. Um, so thank you.
4: Well, as the new policy supremo of the, uh, <laughs> um, uh, I know it is a very difficult issue. This wasp, this waspy uh, pension coming down, but Margaret Greenwood's are. Uh, work and pension secretary and she's looking at some uh, uh reforms and measures i mean we did uh, i hope i'm not speaking out of turn and uh, i probably shouldn't say it now you just reminded us that we're being recorded but we did um we did we did make some announcements on support for wasby women but it it didn't it didn't benefit all the women affected and uh, some people some of the women were very upset and angry with us um uh um, but I know we are looking at it to make sure that we can give women and uh, who have lost their pension the support that they uh they deserve and and need and um I'm sorry to be passing the book, but it isn't my portfolio area, but I do know the relevant sh- shadow minister is looking at it um very very carefully i mean these are all they are all good questions, and I suppose i mean the theme running through this is i think sort of la- lack of agency sort of i call it um alienation to use a term which as you know is familiar to those of us who've studied our uh, socialist history uh, and i think that speaks to the gentleman i don't know if he's still here yeah yeah um, over there about are we going to support people who self organize and of course we should support people who self organize the uh, the stifling of people is what as i think is leading to some of these some of these problems but it's also to do with the way the economy is structured as well which is why we have to have a big interventionist uh, agenda and why we absolutely desperately have to do change things and <laughs> But just think about the economy, and think about what we value, or what the economy values, and what it doesn't value. And then, when you think that through, it, it should be—it's unsurprising that we have to tackle and confront these issues or these problems. I mean, there's a the way of putting it—is the way that actually Bobby Kennedy put it in 1960, whatever it was and I can't quite remember uh, the quotation exactly, but he said something broadly along the lines of, even if we abolished uh, material poverty, G- we'd, still be, we'd still have our GDP measurements, which measures pollution, measures the guns that we manufacture, it measures the, uh, the nuclear warheads, it measures, because he was talking in the 60s, cigarette advertising, It measures the violent TV shows which persuade our children that they want to buy uh, replica violent toys. But it doesn't measure the health of our children. It doesn't measure the quality of their education or the joy of play or the beauty of our poetry or the integrity of our public life. And he was right because we have had such an emphasis on GDP, economic growth, quite understandably so. And we sometimes have neglected or always neglected for many, many years the importance of some of these spiritual things, some of these things about agency, uh, some of these things which are about what it comes goes to the very soul and heart of what being a human being is all about. And I think we've got to get that back into some of our public policy uh, discussions, because if we do then we will build uh, that socialist uh, society, because of course if you will recall from your Your studies of Marxism, you will remember. And again, I probably haven't got the quotation exactly right, but an era when you can uh, uh, hunt and fish in the morning and read Plato at your leisure in the evening. We've got to get back to giving people uh, uh, leisure again and support again. And that's surely what it's got to be all about.
1: I just want to say something very quickly about the aging of the population because one thing that's happening is the poor are being just left to die unless they're on life support in which they might live forever but if they're not on life support now they are dying before their time and that's because we need enormous resources for care for the elderly and we have to start again thinking differently about the whole nature of caring work so that it is valued as the most important work we're doing and For carers, caring for the elderly now, they're in the most terrible situation because there's no relief for the caring work they're doing. There's no community resources. So there has to be more time for people to be at home to do caring work, to care for those dependents in need of care. And there has to be community resources built all around that so that they're able to do it because that's what's just simply disappeared as the... Demands like the demand of an ageing population is there. There are all sorts of ways we could address it, and we haven't even begun to get anywhere near addressing it. We've moved right away from addressing it. And they can't just help themselves. That is thinking about how we support carers, how they can have the time, whether it's through (laughs) universal benefits or some way they have to be able to have the resources to be able to spend more time at home doing caring work, but not only doing that work, because they're also going to need relief from that work, with other people also stepping in to help with that caring work. So that seemed important to stress.
2: (laughs) Quickly, I I, I was a full-time carer for five years. Um, And yeah, uh, it it would be lovely to feel supported, valued, and have some respite, Uh, as it is. As anyone who's done it probably knows, it's you, you feel like you're the fire service that's always putting out fires forever, and and that's all there is, and there's no support. Yes,
0: absolutely. Um, so we'll just take um, ooh, that's the wrong microphone. Uh, we'll just take a couple more comments. We basically haven't got much. We're running out of time. Um, so you had. Sorry, the woman behind you just had her hand up. Could you come forward?
10: Thank you. My name's Teresa. Can I just thank you and congratulate you for mentioning about the BME community because if you don't interrogate the narrative properly, you perpetuate the the issue. I'm a WASP. I'm proud of that. I'm also BME. So... If I go out into society with poor mental health and I don't see myself represented amongst the clinicians who are delivering the service because I exist in an institutionally racist, white, middle-class, patriarchal society, and that is a fact, that impacts negatively on my mental health before I start. So to say one size fits all and let's just look at what the issues are. So I would like to congratulate you on that because if you don't interrogate it properly, you're never going to solve the problem. And just thanks very much. No, no
2: no need to thank, but what a wonderful opportunity to say, Google Kindred Minds GoFundMe. Give them some money or share it with people who can. Thank you.
0: I uh, will just have the last comment from this one.
11: I'm a, I'm a CBT therapist and a socialist CBT therapist. and I, I just wanted to say that, actually, if you have had that experience of CBT, you probably haven't had CBT, so I would maybe ask for another therapist, really. Um, One of the the comments, I've got a lot of things that I wanted to say, but I'll try and keep it short. I did work in an IAP service, and year on year they they did um, a study of the therapists working within those services about their own psychological health. And I think the 2016 survey... 50% 50% of those workers had regular f- feelings of failure, and 50%, around 49, 50% met the, the, their own scores, you know, the PHQ-9, I don't know if anyone's come across that, but it's a depression score. 50% also were were showing up regularly on those scores. I think... Um, one of the issues that we need to address is the competitive society that we have because all workplaces have become like a 1970s car factory where you're constantly battling against targets. Doesn't matter you know, where you work, it's actually the same things we, we see. And young people now, the, the cost of their failure you know, when you think about young people going to university, the worry about failure and letting down parents is a massive issue for young people, which um, is also feeding into anxiety. But I do think we have some socialist answers. I think there already is a really good socialist model of mental health, which which is about us using all of our knowledge. And therapy is not competing against each other, but actually blending the best things that we know from medication and psychological therapy. And I'll say no, more at another
0: time. Uh, we're we're going to we're have to close. I'm sorry not everyone got to speak. I mean, everybody wanted to speak, more or less. Uh, and it's not surprising because it affects so many people. It's also been quite a wide-ranging discussion, and once again, that's not, that shouldn't be surprising. Uh, Because if mental health affects so many aspects, but before you all shoot off, can we just thank our panel again? I think it's been a really good session,
8: lovely.